This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tinder dry conditions are fueling massive wildfires across the state, and there's no end in sight. Richard Nagley was forced to evacuate his home in Alamosa because of the spring fire. He was allowed to return, but has been warned he may have to leave again. We're only in phase one now, meaning the fire. What's going to happen when the rain comes, when the snow comes? Then we're going to have mud, mudslides. Things are going to go from bad to bad again. And no one is even talking about that yet. The latest drought map released today lights up bright red in southern Colorado, so meaning a mix of extreme and exceptional drought. But a CU Boulder researcher says it's time to retire that word drought in favor of something more fitting. Douglas Kenny directs the Western Water Policy Program at CU. He joins us from Boulder. And hi, Doug. Hi. Why do you think we need a new word? The, the problem with the way the word drought is being used is that that drought signifies a, a temporary problem. You know, a drought is something that is unpleasant, but you give it a little time, you wait it out, it goes away. And that's really not what we're seeing in, in, the, in the West, especially the Southwest. We're seeing the climate is changing. Um, it's, it's changed already in the last 30 or 40 years. It's almost two degrees warmer than it was. And, and, it's, and that means it's going to get drier. And so this idea that we just wait this out um, is, you know, is, is, is not the right thought, not, not the right message to put out there. And the word drought, I think, puts out that incorrect message. It's almost as if there's hope inherent in the word drought, and you're saying there's <laughs> not that much reason for hope? <laughs> well, sure, make me out to be the bad guy here, but... Uh, uh, um, but no, the, the the reality is, if you look at the you look at the trends and you look at the data and you look at the projections, there 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 isn't a lot of reasons to to be hopeful. I mean, the, it's just getting the fact that it's getting warmer means there's just going to be less water available, and 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 you know, and that's you know that's not an optimistic message, but it's something we can deal with. But it's uh, but it's the reality, and you know, it's. It's it's never fun to confront an unpleasant reality, but um, you have to do it one way or another. We'll talk about how to deal with it in just a bit, but what word do you suggest instead? Well, my colleagues and I suggest aridification, which is a which I know everyone's rolling their eyes right now because that's a classic academic word. But uh, um, people understand this concept of aridity and that we're in a semi-arid region, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and that's. But that's becoming magnified. We are in a process of becoming more arid. And where that process ends, we don't know. It, it depends a lot on, on, on how the world evolves in the next, next several decades. Um, but for the foreseeable future, we're going to become more arid. So that's why we're saying aridification. Aridification, this process of becoming more arid. And what do you think changing the word would do? And is it something that, that like matters to me, everyday folks? Do you think it matters more to those who manage water along the Colorado River? Uh, what is changing the word mean? It, it, matter, it matters to people that manage water, certainly, but it also matters to people that make decisions that influence how much water we need in the future. So it, it matters to people who make decisions about about growth and development. Huh. And, 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 it, and it matters because, again, if, if, you, if you use... If you're talking drought and you and you have this in your mind that 
things will get better in the next year or two, um, then you don't take long-term actions. Then you don't think about, gee, you know, do, does my behavior need to change in the next, you know, over the next several years? D- d- does the new development that I'm planning, does that need to look different than how we did things in the past? So on and so, f- so forth. But if you talk aridification, you talk about we are transitioning into a different, a different word, a different world, uh, a different climate, literally a different climate, then I think it can influence a lot of decisions um, in, in a lot of ways. And I think that's where we need to get to. You mentioned this in the context of growth. So yeah. this this process of aridification, of it getting hotter and there perhaps being less water available, comes, as we know, as a lot of people move to Colorado, to the West. Uh, and so w- square those two things for me. <laughs> I suppose the fundamental question is, given these changes, is there enough water for the people coming? There is. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's remarkable that how many people live in the West in the cities of the West and how little of the water uses actually happens in those cities. I mean, the vast majority of the water use is in the, in the farms. And so that's really the question. The question mm-hmm. isn't, is there going to be enough water for all these people moving to the big cities of the West? The question is, how are farmers going to survive in the future with more and more pressure on them to, to sell their water to cities? Um, the cities, cities will do fine. The cities have money. The cities can get water. Um, the challenge is to manage this relationship between cities and farms so that the cities don't don't totally overwhelm the farms and, and put farmers out of business. What would you tell a farmer as aridification intensifies? Uh, you know, the, the reality is if, if you're a farmer, then you have a water right, and that water right's only going to get more valuable. And so... Um, you know, there will be pressure to get out of farming, but there will also be an economic incentive at some point to get out of farming. And so, um, and if they, if you want to stay in farming, you can stay in farming. So I, I think there's a lot of options, good options available for farmers, but it's, a, um, you know, there's going to be more and more uh, pressure and more and more knocks on the door from people wanting to know if they, if they're ready to sell out. You said this was also important in general for water managers. I think of water managers as being the kind of folks who look long term, who think 10, 20, 30 years out. Uh, Is it that they're not looking out far enough or that the picture is too rosy? You know, by and large, water managers are paying close attention to what's been going on and understand what's going on and, and know that the world is changing and know that they have to deal with it. Um, so it's not a question that the, the water managers don't understand this. I mean, obviously there's a, there's not everyone's on the, up to the, up to speed this, to the same degree, but by and large, the water managers know what's going on. It's just a question of, it's, it's, it's difficult because water managers, you know, most water managers grew up in an era that whenever you get short of water, you just go out and get some more, right? <laughs> and we've kind of in a new era that, that there isn't some more to go out and get. And so you really have to focus on managing the demand for water, the managing the consumption of water. And that's really not the, the half of the equation that most water managers are trained in or find very interesting. You said that I had made you out to be the bad guy earlier in our conversation. Where do where do you have hope? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's several reasons for hope. One is one is most of the big cities of the West have figured out how to use less water, 
I mean, whether you talk about Denver or L.A. or Albuquerque or Phoenix or Salt Lake or, or whatever, pretty much they're all using the same or less water than they were 25 years ago. Remarkable. Yet these are the, fast, these yeah. are the fastest growing cities in, the, in America, many of these. So, I mean, Las Vegas is the, is the best example. And I know people always pick on Las Vegas, but... If if everyone if everyone had their act together the way Las Vegas does, that we'd have no problems. Las Vegas uses significantly less water than they did uh, three or four decades ago, and yet it's been the fastest growing city in America over that time. And where else do you see hope? You, you said that there might be more than one reason. I I'm make sure <laughs> I follow up on that. Uh, well, you know. Uh, the big issue, as I mentioned earlier, is this relationship between cities and farms. And, and there's reason for hope there as well, because it used to be cities would 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 buy out whole farming regions and, and, and those places would become ghost towns. And and the cities have, have figured out that that, you know, they don't they don't want to be the bad guy. They don't want to operate that way. And so there's a lot of creative arrangements emerging between cities and farms that that you know, temporary fallowing of fields and, and other other mechanisms, other creative arrangements between cities and farms where some some water is conserved in farming, but yet the farming doesn't go out of business. Altogether. And, and, so, and so, I mean, those are, there's, those take a lot of different forms and, and those are, those are trickier than they should be, um, but we're making progress on those. And of course, so many of the people in the cities depend on the food that the farms produce. Yeah. Douglas, thanks for being with us. Give us the word one more time that you want us to use. <laughs> one more time. Aridification. Aridification. Okay. Douglas directs the Western Water Policy Program at CU and is part of the Colorado River Research Group, which released a paper called When is Drought Not a Drought? Drought, Aridification, and the new normal. We'll post a link later today at CPR.org. The president is expected to announce his pick for the Supreme Court next week. This is to fill the seat vacated by Justice Anthony Kennedy. The president's nominee would need 50 votes in the Senate to be confirmed. I spoke earlier this week with Republican Senator from Colorado, Cory Gardner. Uh, Senator, in 2016, after the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, President Obama tried to nominate a replacement. And at the time, you said it was too close to an election. That was in February of that year, roughly nine months from the election. Here we are about four months from an important midterm. Uh, Why shouldn't the same rule apply? Well, to be clear, that was a presidential election year of a lame duck president. I think the Biden rule, as we talked about then, uh, applied in the last year of a president where Joe Biden himself said, you should wait until the American people speak and have the election and then move forward with a, a Supreme Court uh, nominee. I don't think anybody had any idea in February uh, what would happen. Uh, and certainly, I think uh, the election surprised a lot of people, including me. And that's why I think the Biden rule was important. Referring to Joe Biden. And, and yet the, the Senate is an equal partner in getting a justice to the Supreme Court. You've got the president that plays an equal role in the Senate, and the midterms would obviously determine the makeup of the Senate. So with the Senate as an equal partner, why wouldn't that apply? Well, if you look at what President Obama did, I think in 2010, I believe it was Justice uh, Kagan. Justice Kagan was appointed in a very similar situation. The first midterm of President Obama 
was approved by the United States Senate with uh, bipartisan support. So I would anticipate the same kind of procedure moving forward. Some Democrats, including Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, have said it would be improper for President Trump to nominate a justice while he's the subject of an ongoing criminal investigation, the, the Mueller investigation. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that's the same kind of thing they said when uh, Colorado Neil Gorsuch was nominated for Supreme Court. He had bipartisan support going forward. That's the same thing they tried to do. Look, I, you know, I, I hope that what people will be interested in doing is finding a bipartisan process that will find the best qualified judge. This is somebody who will follow the law, follow the Constitution. And Justice Gorsuch said it best. Uh, any judge who agrees or likes personally every opinion they reach is probably a bad judge because that means they're following their personal opinion and not the law. The, the questions I have for any nominee is going to be, you know, how are you going to view the Constitution? Are you going to try to displace the legislature? Are you going to try to carry out policy from the bench? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, our founders intended judges to be ruling on the law, not whether their personal opinions or what the legislature did or didn't do. It's the law itself. Are you rooting for someone in particular? Uh, there on a larger list was a, a couple of Colorado names. I think Allison Ide, who served in Colorado for a decade as a Colorado Supreme Court judge, uh, she's been for several months now on the U.S. Uh, District Court, Circuit Court, excuse me, for the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. She would be an excellent selection. I've forwarded her to the president. She's on the short list of the president already. I hope he gives her a very serious consideration. I'd like to see her on the bench. No word, though, that he's met with her, correct? No word yet. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, it would be tough because she's from Colorado and she just followed Neil Gorsuch from Colorado. And now I've talked to the White House legal counsel, Don McGahn. He has told me that that won't matter if this is a right fit. But it probably is an uphill climb at this point. Do you hope uh, that this nomination eventually leads to a narrowing or reversal of Roe v. Wade? Well, look, I don't think you can get into any specific cases on anything. I think uh, it'd be unwise to dictate or try to guess where a judge will follow the law on any case that comes before them, because each one is unique. In fact, that's what we, that's what we want. We want a judge who will follow precedent, who will follow the law. Uh, and so that's the questions, uh, the kind of questions I'll be asking of any nominee. Uh, apart from the actual screening process, though, uh, is it your hope that the court will eventually narrow or reverse Roe v. Wade? The question is whether or not the law will be followed, and that's the most important thing we can ask and expect of any judge. Finally, you are sponsoring bipartisan legislation that has to do with the use of drones near fires. Obviously, lots of fires, wildfires burning in Colorado right now. Why is the time so important to pass this particular drone legislation? Over the past several days, I've been in western Colorado. I was in Grand County. We were talking about the Sugarloaf Fire. We were talking about the Chedsky Fire, talking about the, the fire right by uh, Grand Lake itself. And I met with a sheriff deputy who said he wrote a ticket to an individual for interfering with a firefighting operation because this individual was flying a drone over a fire. We've heard in the, in the uh, spring fire that they had to shut down the tanker, air tanker operations because some moron was out there flying a drone over the forest. Uh, I've introduced legislation to make it a felony with up to a year in prison. Uh, if somebody wants to interfere with a forest firefighting operation that takes tankers out of uh, operation, that puts lives at risk, that is dangerous, it's stupid. And I hope that people will realize that kind of activity is no longer going to be condoned or uh, looked over in Colorado and beyond. Senator, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Ryan.
Republican Senator from Colorado, Cory Gardner, speaking with me earlier this week. One clarification, he mentioned the Biden rule. To be clear, no such Senate rule to delay consideration of a nominee until after the election exists. And PolitiFact notes that Biden's comments in 1992 as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee came at a time when there was no Supreme Court vacancy to fill or nominee to consider. We've invited Democrat Michael Bennett to talk about the Supreme Court vacancy, For now, here's some of his statements. The president and the Senate owe it to the next generation of Americans to identify a consensus nominee. The president should resist the temptation to nominate an extremist who could be approved only by a bare majority vote. We should not poison the court further with the Senate's partisanship. How do you summarize the Trump administration's view of foreign policy? It's a question experts have grappled with as they watch President Trump interact with NATO, Russia, and North Korea. A panelist at the Aspen Ideas Festival last week gave his take. Jeffrey Goldberg, the longtime Middle East correspondent, is now editor-in-chief of The Atlantic magazine. For contrast, he described what came before Trump, the Obama doctrine, In really one sentence, the Obama doctrine is that humans are flawed and that America is flawed and that America is capable of doing harm through its application of power and just its sheer size. As likely to do harm as likely to do good. You could look in the Middle East context, you could say that the Obama doctrine really was pivot away from the Middle East. This is a swamp. Asia is our future. That's a specific sort of thing. But dispositionally, it was that we have to approach the world with a kind of modesty and understanding of our power and an understanding that we can get things wrong, that everybody in the world is trying to draw us into their problems. The last two years of Syria were, from his perspective, a heroic attempt by his administration not to get sucked in at obviously a moral cost, which will be debated for years. Okay. And as for the current administration? The Trump doctrine is actually easy. He's been remarkably consistent on foreign policy for the last 30 years. There's a record of statements. He loathes alliances, mistrusts allies, doesn't like free trade, um, all for the same reason, which is that he feels that since World War II, we've been ripped off. We're the richest country in the world, and everybody sees us as the piggy bank. So he has to end those things. He doesn't believe in multilateral alliances because, again, thinks that it's just an attempt by people to bring us into their problems. He does believe in transactional relationships. Obviously, another aspect of the Trump doctrine is that he has a fondness for authoritarianism. And on a personal level, on a state level, he has a a weakness for authoritarian strongman figures, um, which is a piece of the final final observation, which is that he's more than a hard-nosed realist. He's he's an extreme transactionalist, which Mm -hmm. is to say all there is is business deals between countries and among countries. There's no layering in of anything having to do with morality or human rights or the shining city on the hill or America as a beacon of freedom and democracy. It's just they have a thing that I need to buy and I want to sell them some stuff. And and that's about it. You might not agree with it, but there is a coherence to his worldview. And unlike most people, there hasn't been, and I don't say this, I'm trying to say this in a non-sardonic way, there's not a learning curve which is to say events in the world, observable events in the world and changes don't affect the way he views the world. Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, contrasting the foreign policies of President Trump and former President Obama. That was recorded last week at the Aspen Ideas Festival. (music) 
The NFL has become more sensitive to traumatic brain injuries, especially helmet-to-helmet hits like this. Up the middle, middle screen to Adams. Ooh, he got popped in the face. Oh my mouth guard comes out, and they're asking for help right away. Jim, oh no. And a flag. That looked bad. So the quest is on to create equipment that might keep the players safer. Well, a new startup created by a professor at CU Denver has caught the attention of pros and college football alike. Chris Yakaki is president of Impresio, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You're working on better helmets. But as I understand it, you aren't making the shell, the hard outer part, but rather the material that goes inside. Tell us about this and how did you discover this? Correct. Well, so we're using uh, what we call liquid crystal elastomers, and that usually will make most people go cross-eyed when they first hear that. Uh But the funny thing is you've actually been staring at liquid crystals for 20 years. If you've owned a LCD TV, right? You know, LCDs were like the the, the big TVs before the the LED ones that are out now. Um, They use liquid crystals. And they're an interesting type of material. They actually look like uh, molecular footballs, I'll say. They almost look like these little ovals that can rotate and they let light pass through your television. Now, we're not making televisions. We're making this material for a football helmet. And so these little, uh, I'd say, football molecules, uh, when you stretch them, they will rotate and they dissipate energy. So I've given you a little piece here. And you yes, can kind you've, of, you've handed me a very yeah. thin, almost waxy mm-hmm. Uh, rectangle here, and, and thin. So, and so these materials are called elastomers, but it's a fancy name for saying like it's a rubber. But uh, I encourage you to pull it and then kind of describe what happens. Just so kind of stretch it. it on out. Okay, so imagine that I'm pulling this waxy sheet and, and it is, in, first of all, it's incredibly durable. Mm-hmm. And as I pull it apart, it's stretching a bit, but pretty much like maintaining its form it's becoming clearer. And it becomes clearer. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that you can see the liquid crystals when they rotate, they're letting the light pass through. But it should have felt very gummy. It should have felt very yes. dissipative. And if you pull it in the opposite direction, you'll feel it almost feels like silly putty, but then it doesn't it doesn't break into two. Like even that's right. most people think of silly putty. It is remained intact. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so uh, these materials, uh, by using these liquid crystals or uh, like I say, molecular footballs that rotate, we can we can dissipate or absorb a lot of energy during an impact. And so this is just something that's fundamentally has never been commercialized in polymers or plastics before. And so, you know, foams have been around for a while. Everyone kind of knows of, you know, like foam mattresses, foam seats, you know. You and know, the foam in Foam's on the microphone right here. Yeah. And bike helmets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and bike helmets and football helmets. But in football helmets in particular, it's been about the same foams for several decades. Huh. And so, uh, you, you know, you can only do so much if you always have the same starting materials. And so for us, uh, what we kind of focused on at CU Denver was how do we take this material that – from a laboratory perspective, is very unique. People had published on these materials for a long time. But how do we actually get it out into the marketplace? And so we've uh, kind of patented a technique to scale this up. And you can see we made these films. I have a kind of a larger ball here. Uh, I know the listeners can't, can't see it, but, but something that's, that's tangible and, and big that you can hold in your hand or even fit into a football helmet. And how would this help players' brains? That is fundamentally what we're talking about here. Yeah. And so you get a concussion because your head experiences too 
too much acceleration in one one direction or another. And so uh, if you if everyone took physics one, it all goes back to you know force equals mass times acceleration. Mm. So the, the the higher or the faster the acceleration, uh, the higher or kind of more more force that you will feel. And so what happens is uh, you know kind of under these uh, large accelerations, your brain, for lack of a better term, is really sloshing around on the inside. And so what our goal is to do is to reduce that accelerating. Uh, you say, I would say force or, 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 or movement. And so to do that, you want to kind of cushion and give the helmet as much padding a- around the skull as you can. It's very similar to um, cars, how they now have crumple zones. And so when you, when you crash an automobile, if the car doesn't crumple, if it's like an old 1970s kind of steel tank, um, you, you get hurt a lot more because uh, there's, you don't absorb any of that energy. The accelerations are very fast. I'm wondering if some collisions are worse than others. Uh, I mean, I think of the football tackle. Is that like every other tackle? Do you need to be considering, you know, the 15 different angles that someone might be hit from? Yeah. And so are, uh, are all uh, the, yeah. N- the NFL just did a pretty comprehensive study on figuring out, you know, what situation causes the most concussions. Right. And so they looked at uh, was it being tackled? Was it doing the tackling or was it maybe hitting the ground? And um, I don't th- I don't think it was too surprising that uh, the, the vast majority and I'm forgetting the exact number, but I think it was like between 60 and 70 percent of the concussions occurred either when you were tackled or uh, or you were doing the tackling. So okay. yeah, t- tackling is definitely a very significant part of it. Uh, We have said that the NFL is interested in this. So is uh, college football. Did they approach you? Did you approach them? Oh, yeah, we approached them. Uh, So the NFL has uh, kind of funded a lot of opportunities to uh, innovate. And so from our standpoint, you know, we're we're researchers from a lab. And so we're always applying for grants. And so that's what we look for. And so the NFL had a couple things. They have a a head health tech challenge that we won. Uh, They had a kind of a first and future pitch competition that we won. And so, um, you know, they're not trying to just pick maybe one winners, uh, but, you know, um, they're funding several groups and innovators, you know, kind of across the country on new technologies, new uh, therapies, new kind of detection and diagnostic tools. And so we were lucky enough to, to get money for developing new, new equipment and materials. So are you in a race in some ways to make a better helmet? I wouldn't say, well, that, that's, a, that's a tough question. I, I think we're in a race to um, kind of maybe alleviate some of the public concern. And I think you know the concerns there because e- even I get emails now, kind of unsolicited from, especially concerned parents of high school players. Huh. And, you know, that, that's something interesting. I, I normally don't get that as a, as a professor with my research. Uh, you know, most you know, parents aren't emailing me saying, when is this going to be done? Um, so this is kind of a new event for me. But you can tell people are concerned about it. And they, and they, they want to kind of know that the, the sport is safer and that, that we understand as much as we can about it. Safer. Seems key to say safer as opposed to plain safe. Um, is is this making, in your mind, football uh, a responsible sport, one that you would let your kids play in if helmets like this existed? Or do you think that it, it fundamentally doesn't change that equation? Oh, that's a great question. I think that's a... You know, maybe I would answer it this way is, is most sports are really fun because there's a little bit of element of danger in there. Um, you know, even something you might look at uh, soccer, there, there's no tackling supposed to be allowed. Um, but concussions are, you know, still occur in soccer quite a bit, um, mostly when they jump up for and head for a ball. And I, I met a semi-professional player that said he, he suffered, he had to quit because he, he suffered from nine concussions playing that sport. And so I don't think many parents would, would think of that. They say, oh, I'd let my, my kid play soccer. That's fine. Um, 
but I think most sports have that inherent risk to it. I think the important thing is that you you minimize that risk and you don't kind of turn a blind eye on if there is a concern. And if you can do better, you should. And so I think that's that's what the role we're trying to play. And would this mean uh, a drastic reduction in concussions overall or just concussions that are less serious? If this material gets into helmets. And some of that's unknown because uh, there's a research coming out that says uh, subconcussive blows are also bad. And so what, huh. I, what I mean by that is um, even though you didn't get a concussion on a play, you still kind of you know, hit your head. Especially, let's say you're a lineman. You know, to, they don't get concussions as often as maybe, let's say, a running back or a receiver. But they're still kind of banging helmets every play. And so what we'd like to do is, again, every time you're, you're, their helmet bangs against another helmet or player, reduce that acceleration, reduce that force, and try to you know, make it safer across not only the big hits that cause the concussion, but also even these what we call sub-concussive blows to make it safer. How far into the future do you think this technology is? This is always a hard one to answer because I'd love to say tomorrow, but that's just (laughs) not not how commercialization works. Um, We'd like to kind of be in a limited launch by next year. Right now, um, we're, I'd say, a couple weeks away from uh, I like to say making and breaking. You know, I'm a mechanical engineer. So we're going to be testing this material in helmets here this summer. And we're, we're really close to get ready to do that at CU Denver. And we're hoping we can have like a, like a soft launch and work with the Colorado Athletics Department next year. Thank you for being with us. Great. Thanks for having me. That's Chris Yakaki. He's an associate professor of mechanical engineering at CU Denver and president of Impressio, a startup that's trying to make football helmets safer. There have been several high-profile investigations into inappropriate behavior by teachers and principals at Denver Public Schools. There are policies for how to conduct those investigations, but the cases got very different treatment, as CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine explains. First case, Manual High School. Principal Nick Dawkins resigned recently after complaints he created a hostile work environment. Two noteworthy points. First, an outside firm did the investigation. Second, the results of the investigation were not made public. That fueled anger and rumors among students, documented thanks to Facebook. The district says an investigation like this is a personnel matter and can't be shared publicly. Colorado open records experts disagree, and the district has released results of other investigations. The report shows that they did not sufficiently address, share, or report allegations of abuse and the contents of the videos. That was Superintendent Tom Bosberg talking last year about another investigation into allegations against a coach and administrators, this time at East High School. Video that went viral show a cheer coach forcing girls into the splits as they scream out in pain. They did not provide the necessary level of oversight or supervision of the coach, especially as the concerns mounted. That external investigation was handled by a law firm as well. The coach was fired. Bosberg held administrators accountable. The principal retired and the athletic director resigned. Bosberg said the investigation showed the coach bullied girls and forced them to practice while injured. And we must strive to ensure that every single one of our students understands that neither they nor any of their classmates should ever be placed in a situation where they are suffering from physical or emotional harm. 
Students at the Denver School of the Arts have alleged physical and emotional bullying and intimidation in formal complaints. But those cases were handled very differently. A CPR investigation shows complaints in the dance department that go back to 1994. Superintendent Tom Bosberg said complaints over the years didn't rise to a level that required an investigation. And he trusted that DSA principal William Kohut acted appropriately. He did share concerns that were raised with folks at the district level and, and folks at the district level also looked into those concerns. Four letters of complaint filed last year against two dance teachers triggered an investigation. This time, a district investigator reviewed the case, not an external firm. Several months later, the two teachers resigned. The findings were not made public. The district refused CPR's request for a copy of the investigation. None of the complainants got details. Some weren't even told the investigation had concluded. Four months later, students and parents filed more than 10 letters of complaint against two teachers in DSA's vocal department. CPR interviewed 30 current and former students and parents and reviewed 10 letters of complaint. They revealed allegations of improper teacher-student interactions, racially insensitive comments, and allegations of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation against students with emotional and mental disabilities. During her year at DSA, the vocal director, Mr. Styron, ridiculed her minor speech impediment, told her constantly she was too slow, humiliating her in front of her peers. That's parent Julie Johnson telling members of the Denver School Board about her daughter's experience at DSA. He told her she didn't belong at the school on numerous occasions. My daughter witnessed the teacher mocking other students with disabilities. The complaints against the vocal teachers related to policies on harassment and discrimination enforced by federal civil rights law. But Principal William Kohut chose to handle this investigation internally, with Assistant Principal Aspen Miles carrying out interviews. The first thing I just wanted you to do, and I'm going to maybe just stop you because I'll be typing, and what this helps me do is... This interview was recorded by one of the parents who submitted a complaint. After weeks-long investigations, both teachers were cleared and came back to the classroom. CU Boulder professor Elizabeth Meyer says investigators in harassment and discrimination cases aren't required to have special training, but the feds strongly recommend it. She recently conducted a study revealing school districts are unprepared for handling Title IX-related investigations. DPS wouldn't tell us about the assistant principal's level of training. Meyer says... It does feel like in this case they should have maybe gone to that next level sooner since there were so many people involved and such severe allegations across a range of categories of harassment and discrimination. Two months later, new allegations surfaced, and the two vocal teachers are now once again on administrative leave. This time, district investigators are taking the lead. However, Barbara O'Brien, vice president of the Denver School Board, still has concerns. There never should be only an internal investigation. I mean, people are not good at investigating themselves, so I don't know how this was allowed to happen. O'Brien wants to hear what an external independent investigator says and wonders why that hasn't happened. Parents called for that at the May school board meeting. They wonder why the East High investigation and the DSA case were handled so differently. Superintendent Tom Bosberg said the East High case became public from the start. There were concerns raised about who knew what when among the different people involved at both the school level and at the district level, and we felt it was very important in light of those facts, to have an independent investigation 
and make public the facts of that investigation. CPR's investigation of the allegations against DSA teachers showed that Principal William Kohut knew about complaints against one of the vocal teachers in May 2017. An investigation began seven months later when several other families filed complaints. CU Boulder's Elizabeth Meyer says any verbal communication should have started an investigation. As soon as you have noticed that there has been a violation of school policy or federal law or state law, whatever, you are responsible to notify and investigate and follow through. That parent's verbal communication should have initiated a process where that principal began an investigation. DPS officials say there is no set policy about the type of investigation required. They determine it based on the level of complexity, the district's internal capacity at the time, and the risk of a conflict of interest. Some board members, including Barbara O'Brien, say the high number of investigations, particularly at Denver high schools this past year, raises concerns. What is going on in our high schools? We've had two problems at East, one at Manual, two at South, now one at Denver School of the Arts. And sometimes it's a culture that's been allowed to fester. Sometimes it's principals who don't even feel they have to report incidents so that we can make sure kids are being taken care of, parents are informed, the proper people are either retrained or disciplined. O'Brien is concerned about why DPS has a culture in high schools that lets such problems come up repeatedly. The results of the second investigation of the vocal program at DSA are expected sometime soon. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Our next story starts with a disturbing discovery. A couple of years ago, hikers in Chafee County spotted human bones in a rocky ravine. Investigators recovered the remains and combed the area for clues. Was it a homicide? They weren't sure. So they sent the remains and some artifacts to an expert, forensic anthropologist Diane France. She's with the Human Identification Lab of Colorado. And Diane, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You've worked on all sorts of cases involving human remains, including after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, even evaluating the authenticity of skeletons said to belong to a royal family that was murdered in Tsarist Russia. (laughs) But to this Colorado case, remains found near Buena Vista. What exactly did you have to examine? Well, I picked up the remains in Colorado Springs at the coroner's office, and there were probably close to 200 bags from grocery bag size down to coin envelope size that had all kinds of bones in them, individually numbered the way they should be, um, bones and artifacts and so on. And so I picked up these boxes of bags and took them back up to my laboratory. Okay, so it wasn't just bones. You say artifacts, so things found alongside these skeletal remains. Alongside them and for some distance away from them as well. Some of them were probably um, um, associated with the remains and some were clearly not. But, well, there were quite a few non-human bones, deer and so on. Um, There was an old sole of a shoe that was probably not at all associated with the remains, um, a beer bottle, things like that. But there were some other artifacts as well. This strikes me as like trying to put together a puzzle, but not having the picture on the box that goes with it. That's right. Uh That's very much what I do. Where do you start? Well, I started by um, 
taking all the bones and artifacts out of the bags and making sure that I had all the numbers associated with them. What do you mean numbers? Well, they did this exactly the right way. The sheriff's office and the coroner's office. They picked up the remains and, and mapped everything in, gave everything a unique number, and then bagged the remains with those unique numbers. And so I had to make sure that I kept all the numbers associated with each one of the elements, each one of the bones. Okay. So I then just put everything out on a table and started to reassociate things. Started and to put the skeleton together and one skeleton? One skeleton. Okay. And was there the majority of that skeleton present? I was amazed at how much there was. There was quite a bit. Usually it's not the case. Uh, very often it isn't, especially if the remains have been skeletonized. Usually scavengers will, co- will come and, and take some of the remains and just elements, you know, just the weather and, and snow and water and so on will carry some elements away. And you're doing this on a table? Right. On okay. a big table. On a big table, right, that is the size of, of a person. Right. And can you tell pretty quickly uh, what the age of that person was, what the sex of that person was? Yes. <clears throat> this this skeleton was actually pretty easy with that. It was clearly a male, had a lot of the male characteristics in the pelvis and the cranium, and and uh, the age was also really pretty easy. Um, a lot of the bony elements were not yet fused to each other. The growth centers, the dentition wasn't fully developed, and so dentition like the teeth area, the teeth. Okay, right. mm-hmm. dentition. I didn't <laughs> know that was a word, mm-hmm. but these are signs that it was a younger male. Yes, exactly, a teenager. Now, of course, the critical question is, when and how did he die? So let's tackle perhaps the when. Was it a recent case? No, it was clearly not a a recent case. The bones were really weathered. Some of them were bleached white. Uh, Most of them were actually pretty dark. It looked like they had not been exposed to the sun, uh, most of the remains. But other parts of the remains were bleached white so that they were exposed to the sun. For a prolonged period of time. For a prolonged period of time, yes. And also exposed to some moisture, too. Um, Some of the the elements were starting to crack and exfoliate. Um, They had not... um, they had been there for a long period of time. Okay, so you've been able to establish that it's a male skeleton. Right. And that it did not die, he did not die recently. Right. And that he was young. Right. So I suppose that rules out all sorts of uh, alarming trends, like do we have uh, a murderer on our hands? Exactly. An active murderer. Right. I mean, how, how old? We're, were you able to determine the, the remains being? Okay. Well, these were really very weathered, so I did not think it was a recent case. Okay. And one of the first things that we do is try to determine forensic significance. So um, when I talk to the coroner, do I have to tell him to be worried yeah. that this is somebody recent? This was not one of those cases. And one of the clues was that there were a lot of associated artifacts. One of the best ways to determine the age of a skeleton when it is clearly decades at least old is to look at the artifacts and this fellow had a belt buckle and some stitched leather looked like reins from a bridle and some pieces of really dry cracked dirty leather that looked like it could have even been chaps and or some kind of clothing and so I said something out of the old West. maybe. It it did. And that's kind of what I was thinking, actually, when I was looking at these. So I sent some photographs to the Colorado Historical Society. And the person there said, yes, it looks like from the belt buckle, this is clearly at least 100 years old, probably from the mid 19th century. 
actually. And the stitching on the leather looked like it was machine done, but that also could have been right in the middle of the 1800s. This is fascinating. So you're an expert in the remains, but if you see an item alongside those remains that might indicate the era of death, you have to find the experts who might know, gosh, when did that kind of, I don't know, stopwatch exist? Exactly. Right. Yeah, I'm not an expert in the associated artifacts, whether it's Native American or it's early uh, historical uh, remains. I'm not an expert in that. I mean, could it have been someone in a Halloween costume? I mean, what if that threw, you know, what if things could throw you? Things could throw me. That's true. But, and, you know, I might have been concerned about that if the skeleton itself hadn't looked so old. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're hearing about a mystery that was solved in Chafee County. Hikers had discovered human remains, bones in a rocky ravine. And the question was, is this homicide? Is this a recent case? Diane France is a forensic anthropologist with the Human Identification Lab of Colorado, and she was put onto this mystery. Uh, And did you try to determine thus the cause of death? I know that probably felt less important given how old the case was. Well, that's true. But, you know, curiosity is always there. So Uh the only damage he had was to his cranium and the back of the cranium. And so I was wondering, since he was found deep inside this rocky crevice, I was wondering whether or not, if he still had the reins of this, of the bridle, um, whether or not he was just sort of riding along and either he fell off, his horse threw him, something like that. This is all conjecture. You know, yeah. I'm just making up stories here. But um, the only damage, like I say, was to the back of his head. Did he hit his head and then fall into this, this crevice? I, it's possible. Do you uh, frequently start to build stories in your mind about the people whose remains you're examining? Well, I try not to build far-fetched stories, but sure, sure. And I was really wondering on this particular case, the thing that kept coming into my mind is, here's this kid, this 15 to 18-year-old kid, and he's riding along, and he falls off, or his horse throws him off, and his parents to the day they died, never knew what happened to him. Yeah. And no family has emerged uh, oh, no. several generations on or something. No, no, huh? No, I don't think that it's it's likely that anybody would even start to do a real identity on him. So I think this will always just be a mystery. This is not now a homicide investigation no. by any means. No. No, not at all. I wonder how often people think they've come across human remains, but in fact they've come across animal remains. Well, I like to say that we're animals too. Well, then that's right. (laughs) Non-human animals. Non-human, Thank you for the precision. I really appreciate that. (laughs) I get probably one to two emails a week at least from law enforcement or coroners, medical examiners, or from the public. And they send me photographs and say, is this human or not human? And you can tell in pretty short order just from the photographs? Just from the photographs, usually. If it's a really small bone fragment, sometimes I'll have to say, no, you need to send it to me. So, But usually I can. Are there tests you run on remains? Um, I'm pretty low-tech. Pretty low-tech? I am pretty low-tech, right. I just know what bones are supposed to look like and what the age would look like in sex and ancestry and so on. So um, I take measurements but and photographs, but for the most part, I don't do any crazy tests. I want to say that these remains were reburied recently. They were. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was a burial last week. held for them. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen? Where 
well, where bones are reburied or yeah, when... that, that, that have no immediate family connected to them. Um, burial is exactly the right thing to do. If the body has not been identified, then you want to bury them. Some corners around the country will cremate remains. And then, of course, that just takes a lot of information with it. So there's a good chance it'll never be identified at that point. Diane France, I'm fascinated to ask what other cases you're working on right now, or perhaps some more recent ones that might... Uh, I can't talk about specific cases that are still ongoing, ongoing. Mm-hmm. but um, but I'm dealing with a couple of homicide cases right now. Um, uh, that's, that's that's basically all, all I can say at this point. Yeah. When it is more clear that it is homicide, why do they involve you? Well, if the body is identified, then I can determine the circumstances surrounding death. So gunshot wound, sharp injury, blunt trauma, that sort of thing. Um, and and I, that's a function of like how the bones have broken? Or? Yes. Yes. The marks on the bones. And that's really, that's the information that I get. I get clues from the skeleton. So if it's blunt trauma, for example, I can determine the, the direction of force. Sometimes I can even identify the type of instrument that was used. If it's gunshot wound... You know, I, I can tell them quite a bit about the circumstances. Is that something you try to model in the in your lab, like a particular blow or something? Um, I do. Um, actually, I own um, part of a casting business at this point, and I can make models of the elements and then present them in court and then I explain see. to the jury exactly how, how something occurred. Thanks for sharing this with us. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm, it's my pleasure. Forensic anthropologist Diane France of Fort Collins, she determined that bones found in a Chafee County ravine belonged to a teenage boy who died in the mid to late 1800s. His remains, as we said, were laid to rest in a Salida cemetery just last week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.